Breakfast. You're listening to The 123 Show this afternoon with me, Karen Ko. And as you know, Radio 3 has been talking with writers from the Hong Kong Literary Festival all of this week, and we're delighted to be joined now by Pico Aya. So Pico is the author of two novels and 13 works of nonfiction, including three new books just this year. Pico, welcome to the studio and welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So you are definitely a prolific writer. You don't <laughs> waste time putting those those um, works out. Um, you're also a very keen observer of, of places and people. And you, you just told me before we came on air that you come to Hong Kong quite a lot. What, what are your observations of Hong Kong? If someone, if someone were to ask you, what is Hong Kong? What would you tell them? Energy, movement, agitation. Um, I sometimes when I fly over here from Los Angeles, I'll arrive at midnight, let's say, I'll arrive in Causeway Bay, I'll go out into the streets, and I'll think I've moved about 40 years ahead <laughs> overnight. And there's nothing in the United States could compete with that sense of engagement and movement. So it's an exhilarating place. It makes New York seem slow by comparison. Yeah, you know, I spend summers in New York, and I'm always like, well, when you walk down the streets in New York, people don't physically bump into you like they do in Hong Kong. <laughs> I've never seen a place where people are so often actually bending over their phones as in Hong Kong. Yes, um, that's true. That's so another very bad habit. <laughs> it helps with the bumping, certainly. Yeah, exactly. And you've, of course, you've travelled all over the world and you've written about so many places. Despite all the diversity that you must see everywhere, what are the commonalities that you find everywhere? Uh, at the human level. I find if I'm at home uh, in my mother's house in California, if I think of Hong Kong or Syria or Ethiopia, all I think about is how different they are from the US. And of course, the minute I get off the plane and step into a taxi in any of these places, the taxi driver's worried about his children, he's complaining about the government, he's concerned about the economy. He sounds just like any taxi driver in Los Angeles or New York. And uh, in the course of my travels, I don't believe that the world is getting any smaller. I think actually the differences and distances between us are greater than ever before but at the human level we'll always have so much in common that's interesting you say that because in some ways because of technology you know people feel maybe a lot more connected to each other even if they're not in physical proximity I can know what you're thinking from your Instagram feed or your Facebook post or whatever right that's true but what I say in let's say American English might become something entirely different when it's Hong Kong English or English English or Australian English it's as if we're all speaking the same language but actually in in different dialects and um, and sometimes the illusion of closeness or connection actually is what keeps us further apart. I've, I've been a couple of times to North Korea and whatever I define as everyday life or human reality when I'm in Japan or the US completely gets upended when I'm a place like that. Right, because everything is just so different. So different, another planet really, exactly. And the assumptions people make are obviously so different Yes, too. yes, yeah. exactly. And they can't begin to imagine our lives, I think, nor we theirs. Mm, interesting. So... You yourself don't live in a big metropolis. You don't live in New York or London or Paris. You've been living near Kyoto in Japan for, what, more than 30 years? Yes. What, what brought you there and what made you stay? That's such a good question. I, I was living a very fast-paced life in um, New York City, 
25th floor office, four blocks from Times Square. And I was in my 20s and I thought, I'm lots of exhilaration here, lots of stimulation. But I'm so caught up in this fast-paced life, I don't know really how, hap- how deep the happiness runs. And I could easily find myself 70 years old thinking, uh, I've died and I've never lived, in other words. So I thought the perfect corrective to New York City would be an empty room in the back streets of Kyoto. Uh, which would force me to be s- slower. More, the day would last a thousand hours. I couldn't take anything for granted. And so that's, that has indeed been the case. And although, as you say, I've been in Japan for 32 years now, it still feels like a foreign country, which to me is an exciting aspect mm. of it. And how did you find that particular location or did, did it find you? I mean, of all the places on the globe, how yes. did you pick out, okay, this little village outside Kyoto? <laughs> well, I knew that Kyoto had been a, a, a capital of contemplation, as it were, for 1400 years. And therefore, there were 1600 temples lining the streets of modern Kyoto. And I knew that was different from what I'd get in New York City. But at a deeper level, it's so interesting that you asked that because I was on a business trip in Hong Kong, 1983, flying back to JFK Airport in New York City. And I had a layover in Narita Airport near Tokyo. So I just a while away the time walked around the little town of Narita. And I found myself in these intimate streets with wooden houses, and suddenly a white temple courtyard on a late October day and I thought I recognize this place I know this place better than my uh, street in New York City or the place where I grew up in England and that if I don't come back here something in me is always going to be unresolved so on the basis of an unwanted layover at the airport I decided to move to Japan and it's something that I've never regretted I was following an intuition but I trust my intuitions more than my thoughts often interesting so you must have some kind of spiritual connection with the place that you, you didn't even realize until until it was a, a sort of woken by that moment. <laughs> That's beautifully said, exactly. If my Indian mother will roll her eyes and say, I must have been Japanese in a past life or whatever. But you're, you're right. I think we all have these secret homes, which are places with which we have no official connection, but we feel this affinity. And affinity is mysterious. It can't be explained. But you'll meet a stranger and you'll feel, I know her forever. And that's how I felt with Japan. Mm, okay, interesting. So... Of course, you lead a busy life. You travel a lot. Um, you spent this year teaching journalism, right? At yes, Princeton? first time ever. Thirty-seven years. In thirty-seven years, I've never been in a classroom till this How year. How was that? Tell us about that experience. It was terrific. The only drawback was it wasn't my desk, and I so loved the adventure of sitting at my desk writing um, that I missed that. But it was interesting to meet. 19-year-olds in an American college campus, much better travelled than I am. They'd almost read no books, but if I gave them a text to read, they would read it far better than I could. So it actually gave me hope. I came away thinking kids today are far brighter than when I and my friends were at college, and they know more about the world. And it's a wonderful thing in a typical US university now. Of course, you get the brightest students from Shanghai and Mumbai and Singapore and Hong Kong. So the level is much higher than when it was all American students. Mm. Um, so it was an exciting way to spend three months. That's nice that you d- you say that you do have hope for y- one for young people and two yes. hopefully for journalism as well. <laughs> yes, I mean what was humbling was many of these uh, young people were actually going into computer science or engineering oh, really? and just doing this on the side to make sure their humanity was still intact and such natural writers and and readers. Uh, but yes, I think more importantly, re- a real sense of global responsibility, which was unimaginable when I was growing up, that China really is 
um, their, their, their neighborhood as right. much as the United States it's is. part of their world. That's right. And if there's somebody from Namibia who's just come in the room, they never think that that person's foreign. We're all part of the same community. And I think the world, in ways we haven't always recognized, has really improved and moved forwards in 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 the part in the, the course of my lifetime and people aren't thinking so much in terms of national or racial divisions mm. of course some places and some people are yes. but incrementally i think the world is moving towards a color blindness which i notice in the younger generation um and yeah. it's, it's tonic to but somebody from my generation definitely you know uh, not just tolerance but embracing of diversity in in every meaning of the word Yes. I, I recently met a friend of mine from school when I was nine years old, a very sophisticated London-born person, and he told me he'd never seen a dark skin till he came into the classroom and saw me when we were nine years old. Really? And he has four daughters who've grown up, grown up in London, and when they bring their friends home, they don't even think to tell their dad so-and-so's of Nigerian or Pakistani or Jamaican. They're all Londoners, as far as they're concerned, and Hong Kong probably knows some of that same feeling, that you're all Hong Kongers, and it doesn't really matter what skin colour you are or what your religion is. Mm, yeah, exactly. So despite all this travel, you um, gave both a TED Talk and you wrote a book called The Art of Stillness, <laughs> which seems to be the antithesis of going everywhere. Can you tell us more about that and, and the thinking behind that? The thinking behind that was a mischievous editor who said to herself and to me, oh, you spend all your time travelling, why don't you go nowhere? So it was her <laughs> idea, not mine. But when I began it, I realised that anybody who takes a trip knows that you go out into the world and collect experiences but really the trip comes into you when you're back home and you think what did I learn how can I live differently what really moved me in that trip and so I've come to think that travel is almost like going to the market and collecting ingredients but sitting still is how you make the meal it's how you put them all together and create something larger than the sum of their parts and of course every writer knows that that the simple part is going and encountering the world and the difficult part is sitting still for day after day for years to try to create something out of your experiences. Mm. And when you say sitting still, do you literally mean sitting still? I do. I mean, it's, I don't recommend this to anyone. I spend f my first five hours every day sitting still. I write by hand. I never have a computer even in the same room when really? I'm writing. And I force myself not to go out. Now, having said that, a lot of my best writing comes when I take a walk at the end of those five hours and I'm freed from my notes and that's when I can suddenly think outside the box. But I am spending five hours sitting still. So although I've never meditated, if I were to say that, my wife would say, come on, all you ever do is sit there and look like you're meditating. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting because... You know, in today's world, it's so hard to do that because there's just so much input around you all the time, whether it's from your phone or the television or, you know, just there's just so much that you can watch or listen to. I know. So it, how hard is it to take yourself away from that? It takes a bit of discipline, for sure. But I'm probably the rare journalist you will ever talk to. I've been doing journalism for 37 years. I've never used a cell phone. I wouldn't even know how to turn really? a cell phone on. Wow. Yes. So, because I think I have, as you were saying, I have already enough data and distraction in my life. The last thing I need is more. What I need is the time and space to make sense of it and process all the stuff that's coming in on me. So that's one big distraction out of the way. And I live in Japan. I speak very limited Japanese. So you so can't talk? <laughs> no, I can't talk to people. I can't watch TV. I can't eavesdrop. So many other things. And I live sort of in a boring suburb in the middle of nowhere. So I know my wife and kids, but not many other people. So actually, it's not so hard to spend five That's hours really sitting in my little desk. That's really interesting. I mean, it's it's honestly, you really get to realize that 
we think we need all these tools all the time and they have to be fully charged and they have to, we have to have Wi-Fi access and 3G access and everything else, but you can get by with very little. I love that, exactly. And it's only when suddenly we're not living with them, we realise what we've been missing all along. And I meet many, let's say, teenagers who will say, my parents took me on a wilderness trip or on a cruise and we didn't have connectivity. That first day was the worst day of my life. And that second day was the second worst day of my life. And that week was the best week of my life. In other words, once they adjust, they suddenly realize, actually, we can be so much more free and happy without having to check for our messages every two seconds. Yeah, exactly. And um, I suppose it also um, goes with that, that awareness of mindfulness now that we're so distracted by doing three things at once and the have been taught of these virtues of multitasking, whereas in fact, a brain is not really good at doing three things well at yes, once. Yes. You know, we can do one thing really well yes. at once, but not three. And it's interesting how the most successful people that we look up to, even the technological sphere, are very wise about that. I was just watching last night a new documentary about Bill Gates, and it shows him every year he goes for a whole week to a little cabin overlooking the water, nothing but books. And that's really how he comes back and brings so much innovation into the world, whether it's through philanthropy or previously technology. Mm. But um, I don't think we can function without stepping away from the the swarm. The buzz. So it's, yeah, yeah, so it's better to know what to bring back into it. Yeah. Um, and um, you are here for the Lit Fest. You just got here <laughs> last night. Tell us what, what to expect from the events that you're doing. So I am actually doing a conversation about stillness tomorrow, Friday evening, um, at a gala event at the China Club and then uh, on Saturday evening I'm talking about Japan and the two new books that you mentioned at the Asia Society. So um, it'll be fun. I think very, very different qualities. So as we've been saying um, Japan and stillness actually go hand in hand because uh, I think anyone who's been to Japan knows that people are always going places and they're always doing something but in a very quiet and self-contained way. It's one of it's the least noisy culture I know. Yes. So I think they've mastered something about self-possession and clarity. It, it does seem to be a very contemplative place. Yes, yes. yes. Well, Pico, thanks so much for joining us today. And um, if anybody wants to go on, go to the events, you, you can get tickets and information on the Literary Festival's website, which is festival.org.hk. So definitely go along and uh, hear what Pico has to say. Pico, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. You too. And we've been speaking with author and journalist Pico 